Today on Reparations in Action. Sometimes they're just straight up death squads. And either way, they're about ripping off and oppressing the the workers and, and the peasants and the impoverished sector of that colony. You're listening to Reparations in Action. Reparations now! Uhuru. You're listening to the White Lies Shattered podcast and FM radio show. My name is Jamie Simpson, and I am the host of White Lies Shattered, which broadcasts on Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. White Lies Shattered, also known as Reparations in Action, is a program of white solidarity with Black Power. Currently, we are in a podcast series exposing the insidious lies we learn as white or European people about the nature and origin of America and the current social system. We believe reparations to African people is the key question of our times and is one that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to salute Black Power 96, where this show is aired and recorded for our podcast. Black Power 96 is not just explaining the world, but changing it. You can get the app for Black Power 96 on Google Play or the Apple App Store and listen wherever you are located. Today, we are continuing to sum up a recent New York Times article, The Ransom, The Root of Haiti's Misery, Reparations to Enslavers, which is an article about the colonial plunder of Haiti following the victorious revolution of of African people in Haiti. So joining us again today is the African People's Solidarity Committee chairwoman and author of Overturning the Culture of Violence, Penny Hess. Uhuru and welcome back, Penny. Uhuru, Jamie. Uhuru, as always, it's so great to to be here. It's so great to talk to you. So um, thanks for the intro. And this week, like as you said, we want to we want to continue our discussion on the recent New York Times article that shows and documents a little bit of the brutal price that France and the United States and others really extracted from African people in Haiti the price for winning their incredible revolution the first successful workers' revolution in the world, and the first successful anti-colonial revolution, which took place or was won basically in 1804. Mm -hmm. So again, my name is Penny, and I'm the chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee, the organization of white people under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party. And I want to join you in saluting Chairman Omalia Shetela, the leader of the African People's Socialist Party, who has fought for the liberation of Africa and African people for more than 50 years. And the thing, you know, Jamie, that I really always appreciate about the chairman, one of the things so much, is his incredible knack and, and ability and insight that turns the world right side up and each individual situation and always able to often very sharp and even sometimes witty way, frame it from the point of view of the oppressed and colonized African people. And you always go, oh, you're so right. He shows how entrenched we are in the ideas of the colonizers in white people's thinking. And he just tears that apart. And that is what is so exciting. So I would say, first of all, that we have to make it clear that some of the points, really almost all the points made by the New York Times article, which I do recommend that people go to the New York Times site and read 
the chairman and the African People's Socialist Party have made those points for years and have put out the significance and absolute you know, importance of the victory of the African revolution of, of Haiti um, for the whole world socialist movement. And yet white people always want to leave that out. Uh, but yes, all these ideas have been there because of the African People's Socialist Party keeping alive what the chairman has called this colonial mode of production, which really this whole situation in Haiti is absolutely um, a profound example of. And let me just say, first of all, that African people forced, kidnapped, worked to death, tortured, just every possible kind of brutality against them uh, had been um, kidnapped by by France and um, just but yet the the resistance of African people in Haiti was was always amazing and it still is. And so um, African people in Haiti launched their revolution in 1791 and um, totally defeated Napoleon's army, meaning 35,000 French soldiers died from the alleged greatest imperial army of its time. And the chairman, one of the things that, the points that he makes in this whole understanding of colonialism and parasitic capitalism is that the real working class in the whole world is the colonized working class, the African working class, the working class in the colonies. And if you want to hear more about that, actually, Jamie, I would really recommend that people would go to one of our most popular episodes, which was the one about the truth about race and class. And that's in this series of White Lies Shattered. And that's yeah. something that people have really responded to. I think the actual title of that one is uh, The Lie That It's Not About Race, It's About Class. Class, yes, yeah. yes. Please check that out because we mm -hmm. go more deeply into this question that the real working class in the world is the colonized working class. And in particular, the African working class colonized inside the borders of the United States, in Africa, and around the world. And, you know, the chairman talks about this concept of the colonial mode of production, the reality, Jamie, that everything produced in the society, in colonial capitalism, is the result of colonialism. There's no other way. There's no benign way that things are. And, you know, this, this idea that we're always taught that essentially the U.S. economy was, it was benign and it was white workers coming here from Europe, forging out a life either in factories or in farmland. But the reality is that the essence of that, the DNA of that was the brutal violence of the enslaved, kidnapped African people in on a land that was stolen from the indigenous people with uh, with the most brutal kind of genocide waged against them, and we have talked about that a lot on this series. So, 
Yeah. So we want to go over more about what the New York Times has put out in their series on Haiti and how the French and U.S. banks enriched themselves by forcing Haiti to pay, quote, reparations for the loss of French property, which was African people themselves. And we want to talk about this through the point of view of Chairman Omali Chatella. So, yeah, so what happened was at the threat of violence as French warships sailed into Haiti's harbor in 1825, which was 21 years after they declared their independence and established the first liberated African-led republic in the world, France, backed by the U.S., forced Haiti to pay about $560 million in gold to the former plantation owners, the former owners of African human being. But this also went through French banks and enriched not only the, the French stock market, but the French population itself. The New York Times estimates that the loss to Haiti's economy is between $21 billion and $115 billion, and really much more than that. Because how can you say with this incredible poverty imposed on African people through the ongoing theft by both France and the United States, what that has meant when, you know, just infamously, Haiti is recognized to be a place where African workers are forced to eat mud pies, mud pies, which is basically dirt, some lard, and maybe a few grains of flour if they can afford that. And I mean, this is hideous. And yet we see all of the wealth and, and uh, glamour of Paris, of France, and of course of the United States, which comes directly at the expense of African people in Haiti and also in Africa. And I would just also note when we talk about the, the fact that this loss to Haiti was at least $115 billion, they were forced to pay $500 million, $560 million, uh, in gold to former plantation owners, that because, because France lost to Haiti, they no longer had the will or even ability to go in to fight the United States, which it was going to do because of that Louisiana territory of which St. Louis, I'm sitting right in the middle of it, which was huge, a huge block of land west of the Mississippi River. So, um, Right in 1804, uh, Thomas Jefferson, you know, just leaped right in, leapt right in and um, bought that territory from France for just an incredible deal of $15 million. So France charged the United States $15 million for 827,000 square miles of land that was called the Louisiana Territory, west of the Mississippi, while Haiti is only 10,000 square miles in its existence, but it was charged what ultimately meant $115 billion to its own economy. This is the colonial mode of production.
So I, what I'd like to do, Jamie, is read. I want to see if you could do the honors and um, read some of the pages of this article that we had printed out. And we can kind of talk about it and discuss it as you go through that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's let's go to that now. So we're starting on the subheading of the ransom, the root of Haiti's misery, reparations to enslavers uh, from the New York Times. And this subheading on page 25 says, how a French bank captured Haiti. It helped finance the Eiffel Tower as it drained millions from Haiti. The bank. Could I? Could we? Could yeah. you just stop? That? I just want sure. to say something about that. Yeah. Because anybody who's ever been to Paris, the symbol of Paris is the Eiffel Tower, mm-hmm. and how brilliant or what you know all these things that they say. And the Eiffel Tower was literally built at the expense of incredible poverty and suffering and violence against African people in Haiti. But let's just make that clear, so that the next time. If uh, you're going on a vacation and you're going to, to Paris and, you know, you see the Eiffel Tower, you see anything about Paris itself that you have to think about what France did and does to African people, not only, not only in Haiti, but in all of their colonies and especially to Africans in, in Africa, which we will talk about in another show. Yes, yes, absolutely. No, I I unite. So how a French bank captured Haiti. It helped finance the Eiffel Tower as it drained millions from Haiti. The bank, CIC, won't talk about it, but the Times tracked how much its investors made and what Haiti lost. Every sentence of the invitation ended with an inky flourish, a triple loop of calligraphy befitting a night of dinner dancing, and fireworks at Haiti's National Palace. Debt had smothered the country for more than half a century. Despite ousting its colonial rulers in a war of independence, Haiti had been forced to pay the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars to its former French slave masters, a ransom for the freedom it had already won in battle. But on the night of September 25th, 1880, paying off the last of that money finally seemed within reach, No longer would Haiti lurch from one financial crisis to the next, always with a weather eye on the horizon for the return of French warships. The new president, Lysias Salomon, had managed a feat that had eluded the nation since birth. The country will soon have a bank, he told his guests, proposing a toast. Outside, soldiers paraded down streets festooned with enormous flags. Salomon had reason for optimism. European national banks had financed railroads and factories, softened the blows of recessions, and added certainty to the business of governing. They helped bring life to a majestic version of Paris, one with clean water, sewers, and grand avenues, investments that would pay off long into the future. Now it was Haiti's turn. Salomon called it a great event, which will go down in history. It was all a mirage. The National Bank of Haiti, on which so many hopes were pinned that night, was national in name only. Far from an instrument of Haiti's salvation, the central bank was, from its very inception, an instrument of French financiers and a way to keep a suffocating grip on a former, col- on a former colony into the next century. Haiti's central bank was set up by a Parisian bank, Credit Industriel et Commercial. 
at a time when the company was helping finance one of the world's best-known landmarks, the Eiffel Tower, as a monument to French liberty, it was choking Haiti's economy, taking much of the young nation's income back to Paris and impairing its ability to start schools, hospitals, and other building blocks of an independent country. Credit Industriel, known in France as CIC, is now a $355 billion subsidiary of one of Europe's largest financial conglomerates, but its exploits in Haiti left a crippling legacy of financial extraction and dashed hopes, even by the standards of a nation with a long history of both. Haiti was the first modern nation to win its independence after a slave uprising, only to be financially shackled for generations by the reparations demanded by the French government for most of the 19th century. And just when that money was nearly paid, Credit Industriel and its national bank, the very instruments that seemed to hold the promise of financial independence, locked Haiti into a new vortex of debt for decades more to come. French elites, including a descendant of one of the wealthiest slaveholders in Haiti's history, controlled Haiti's national bank from the French capital. Their ledgers show no investments in Haitian business, much less the kinds of ambitious projects that modernized Europe. Instead, original records uncovered by the New York Times show that Credit Industriel siphoned tens of millions of dollars out of Haiti and into the pockets of French investors. The national bank that Credit Industriel created charged fees on nearly every transaction the Haitian government made. French shareholders earned so much money that in some years their profits exceeded the Haitian government's entire public works budget for a country of 1.5 million people. Yes, just to, just to say, I mean, I'm glad this graphically lays that out because that's not unusual. This is one situation. But even in terms of today, France still forces 14 African countries that are the so-called Francophone countries, their formal, former colonies, that they have to put 85% of their foreign reserve into the French Central Bank. And they never, you know, they never get it back. They, they're giving it to France. And that is about $500 billion a year to the, to the French Treasury. So this is why, you know, the, when the chairman says African people have produced and reproduced life for white people for 600 years, now African people must be able to produce and reproduce life for themselves. And that's what the liberation of African people means. And I, I just think that, yes, absolutely. You know, Jamie, really, it when you read this, it just turns your stomach to think about this and to see, you know, why reparations are owed, not as, not as a favor. This is what is owed and a thousand million times more. Yeah, I think it's, it's really important to understand that this is not an exceptional question. It's, it's staggering, but this, this is the mode of production this is this mm-hmm. is how this this international system that we currently live under functions is just naked parasitism. It's how it functions. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because it it's not an aberration. It's not mm-hmm. an anomaly. It's how it functions. And you know, this is this is very good that 
that this would be exposed down to the details of how the money was was used and spent and, and stolen. But it's it's in everything that the US does. Yeah. And 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 we'll we'll get to the US's part in it. Yeah, in, and in France. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's let us let us continue and, and yes. please let, let me know if you have any more comments. So that history has been all but erased. Scholars say most of Credit Industriel's archives have been destroyed, and Haiti does not appear on the timeline used to publicize the company's history as one of France's oldest lenders. Wow. What, when it commissioned an official history to commemorate its 150th birthday in 2009, Haiti barely warranted a mention. The scholar who wrote that history, Nicholas uh, Stoskopf, called the company, quote, a bank without a memory. A spokesman said the bank had no information about this period and declined repeated requests to discuss it. The bank that we manage today is very different, the spokesman Paul Gibbert said. After this article was published, the chairman of the bank's parent company said it, it would hire researchers to delve into the bank's history in Haiti and any role it may have played in, quote, financial colonization. Today, the brazen assassination of Haiti's president in his own bedroom, the rampant kidnappings and gangland lawlessness in the capital have given fresh urgency to a question that has long bedeviled the Western world. Why does Haiti seem so perpetually stuck in crisis with staggering illiteracy, $2 a day wages, hunger and disease, a country without public transportation, reliable electricity, garbage collection or sewage systems? Persistent corruption by Haiti's leaders is surely part of any answer, but another part can be found in long-forgotten documents sprinkled in archives and libraries across Haiti and France. The Times sifted through 19th century texts, diplomatic records, and bank documents that have seldom, if ever, been studied by historians. Together, the documents make clear that Credit Industriel working with corrupt members of the Haitian elite, left the country with barely anything to operate, let alone build a nation. And let me just say something about that, because the U.S. and the U.S. media is always so critical of the corruption in Haiti and in Africa. But who is there is who the U.S. wants to be there, mm -hmm. the U.S.-backed the Duvaliers and kidnapped Aristide for even raising the question of reparations that owed to Haiti by France. Um, he was kidnapped and, and exiled in Central African Republic. You know, and I mean, who is there is what the U.S. wants. Is, are the people that the U.S. wants to be there. This is how they want the country run. They do not want an infrastructure. They want poverty. They want dependency. They give a few wealth. They pay them, you know, they pay them well to do this. Mobutu in Congo was one of the richest men in the world because he was given, you know, a huge cut of what, well, actually it was probably just crumbs according to what compared to what the US and and other uh, and other imperialist countries were were taking and still do out of Congo and other places in Africa so yeah I just want to make that point 
But like, you know, like we said earlier in this episode and even in the previous episode, that this is how colonialism functions. It needs yeah. neo-colonial uh, sellouts or you know functionaries in in the colonized country to, to yes. help it extract these resources. Always has, and I think that it's something that is one of these white lies we need to yes. bust up. You know, neo-colonialism, it, right? The the, the it, and the suggestion that it, uh, that colonial capitalism wants to make, and it, its defenders, the defenders of imperialism, want the suggestion they want to make is that well, there's blame on both sides here. Yes, you know, yes, it's it's exactly. it's both corrupt officials and it's the French colonials. It you know the, there were Africans who helped sell other Africans into mm-hmm. slavery, so mm-hmm. there's some blame to go around, and it's just a really disgusting lie that gets told about colonialism. I think because. These colonial institutions, like the New York Times, are insecure just coming out and saying, look, this is the reality, and it's colonialism that bears responsibility. Yeah, it has a narrative that it has to put out. And in this case, it's putting out that, oh, look at us, we're we're so transparent, and we, we really expose this reality that African people, again, have been exposing since day one. But, you know, just the... Um, just, just the way that, yeah, it's always like, well, they always had their, their helpers, the, the Haitian elite, and they're mm-hmm. so corrupt. But again, if you look at any place in the world, including Haiti, when an African leader would come up and, and be backed by the people and attempt to work in the interest of the people, even a little bit, wow, they were wiped off the face of the earth, whether you're talking about um, you know, Saddam Hussein or, or Gaddafi in Libya or so many others, Trujillo, you know, even there on the same island um, in the Dominican Republic. I mean, anybody, any, anybody who has the guts to stand up for the people gets overturned, killed, tortured, slandered, you know, every possible thing happens to them. And right. So, yeah, so they make sure that they have the Duvaliers. They have, sometimes they're slicker, more westernized, or sometimes they're just straight up death squads. And either way, they're about ripping off and oppressing the the workers and, and the peasants and the impoverished sector of that colony. Right. And and if, if they if these servants of the people are able to come to power, they're absolutely demonized in a colonial wars waged against them, like we see with Abel Morales and mm-hmm. like we saw with, with Hugo Chavez. Yeah. And and now with, with Maduro. So mm-hmm. it's it's and it's what, very clear. Mm-hmm. Well what the US is doing right now, it's holding the summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. And Mexico, the president of Mexico, Luis Obrador, said that they that he was not coming. He was not coming, and, and because the U.S. said that um, that they were not going to invite Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, and the president of Mexico had the courage to say, "We're boycotting," and so did some other of the countries of of South America, which is a blow to the U.S. I mean, it's very you know, and we'll see what happens to them. And what the U.S. does in retaliation, but in any case, you know, it's part of this crisis that imperialism is is experiencing right now. That Chairman O'Malley Chatella has has summed up. You know, that no matter what, no matter how many times that they 
they're going to steal everything that the people of Haiti have, or they're going to they're going to kidnap the Aristides, they're going to kill the Gaddafis. The people keep rising up, and it's not going to go away. The U.S. is horribly in a weakened state right now, as we can see, in a crisis based on this resistance that we see around the world, and we see tremendous leadership from the African People's Socialist Party, which is actually organizing for African revolution. And do you think that in a way we can see this article from the New York Times, the ransom as uh, a manifestation of that crisis, an an attempt to solve that crisis? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's read this. This is great stuff, Chairwoman Penny. Let's 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 read some more here. the, the The article uh, goes on by the early 20th century, half of the taxes on Haiti's coffee crop, by far its most important source of revenue, went to French investors at CIC and the National Bank. After Haiti's other debts were deducted, its government was left with pennies, six cents of every three dollars collected to run the country. And I just want to say on that, in the beginning of this article, which I think we read some of that the last time, the area of Haiti in the hills and mountains where the coffee is grown, the families, the Africans who have been there for over 200 years growing the coffee don't even have electricity. They produce this wealth, this incredible wealth for U.S. and France and poor imperialism and they don't even have electricity and never have. That's the colonial mode of production. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the the article goes on. The documents help explain why Haiti rem- remained on the sidelines during a period so rich with modernization and optimism that Americans dubbed it the Gilded Age and the French called it the Belle Epoque, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. This Extraordinary growth benefited both faraway powers and developing neighbors, yet Haiti had vanishingly little to invest in basics like running water, electricity, or education. The damage was lasting. Over three decades, French shareholders made profits of at least $136 million in today's dollars from Haiti's National Bank, about an entire year's worth of the country's tax revenues at the time the documents show. The Times vetted its methodology and sources for these calculations with economic historians and accountants. The financial historian Eric Monet of the Paris School of Economics summed up the National Bank's role as, quote, pure extraction. But the cumulative losses to Haiti were far greater. Had the wealth siphoned off by Haiti's National Bank stayed in the country, it would have added at least $1.7 billion to Haiti's economy over the years, more than all of the government's revenues in 2021. And and that's if the money had simply remained in the Haitian economy, circulating among its farmers, laborers, and merchants without being invested in bridges, schools, or factories, mm-hmm. the sort of projects that help nations prosper. More important, the toll Haiti's National Bank took came after generations of payments to former slaveholders that inflicted as much as $115 billion in losses to the Haitian economy over the last two centuries. 
It did not take long after the fireworks and feasting at the palace for Haitians to realize that something was not right. The National Bank extracted so much and returned so little that Haitians quickly called it the financial Bastille, equating it with the notorious prison that became a symbol of of a despotic French monarchy. Isn't it funny, the Haitian politician and economist Edmund Paul wrote of the National Bank in 1880, that a bank that claims to come to the rescue of a depleted public treasury begins not by depositing money, but by withdrawing everything of value, hopes, and aspirations. Haiti's president was not the only one with heady aspirations. In Paris, the president of Credit Industriel, Henri Derieu, had ambitions of his own. Duryu was not born into the world of high finance. He started his career as a tax collector like his father before striking off in his 40s to join a new bank, CIC. But the early years were tough. The bank had introduced the checking account to France, yet the novelty had not taken off. By the 1870s, the company remained stuck in the second tier of French finance. Credit Industrial enjoyed an advantage, though. It was the preferred bank for much of the nation's Catholic bourgeoisie, clients who had money to invest and expected returns. Derieu, with a taste for risk-taking, drew inspiration from state-led banks in French colonies like Senegal and Martinique. He and his colleagues were enthralled by the idea of creating a bank in these rich but distant countries, as they described it in handwritten notes found in the French National Archives. These banks, quote, generally give brilliant results, end quote, the founding fathers of the National Bank of Haiti said. Haiti, quote, a country new to credit markets, a country of renowned wealth, the National Bank executives concluded, seemed a good bet. Wealth might seem a peculiar word for a Parisian banker to use to describe Haiti at the time. Its capital, Port-au-Prince, was overrun by trash and human waste that washed into the harbor. Streets and infrastructure were so neglected that Haitians had a saying, go round a bridge, but never cross it. But while Haitians themselves were poor, Haiti could make you rich. As a British diplomat, Spencer St. John wrote in 1884, Quote, no country possesses greater capabilities or a, a better geographical position or more variety of soil, of climate, or of production. Slaveholders had taken that wealth for themselves, first with the whip, then with a flotilla of French warships demanding compensation for plantations, land, and what France considered its other lost property, the Haitian people. It was the first and only instance in which generations of free people had to pay the descendants of their former slave masters. A half century later, Duryu and CIC approached Haiti with a different tactic, the outstretched hand of a business partner. Wow. We we owe more than before, is the next subheading. Duryu knew how to sell a dream. Five years earlier, CIC and now a defunct partner had issued Haiti a loan of 36 million francs, or about 174 million today. The money was supposed to build bridges, marketplaces, railroads, and lighthouses. It was a time of worldwide investment. England built new schools and passed laws on mandatory education. 
Paris opened a 97-mile aqueduct carrying clean drinking water to the capital. In New York, the iconic arches of the Brooklyn Bridge rose above the East River, an engineering marvel that would forever transform the city's economy. Beyond bricks and steel, Haiti earmarked about 20% of the French loan to pay off the last of the debt linked to France's original ransom, according to the loan contract. The country will finally come out of its malaise, the Haitian government's annual report predicted that year. Our finances will prosper. None of that happened. Right off the top, French bankers took 40% of the loan in commissions and fees. The rest paid off old debts or disappeared into the pockets of corrupt Haitian politicians. None of the goals has been achieved, one Haitian senator declared in 1877. We owe more than before. The 1875 loan from Credit Industrial and its partner left two major legacies. First is what the economist Thomas Piketty called the transition from brutal colonialism to neocolonialism through debt. Haiti took on millions in new interest, hoping to finally shed the burden of paying its former slave masters. In that way, the loan helped prolong the misery of Haiti's financial indentureship to France. Long after the former slaveholding families considered the debt settled, Haiti would still be paying, only now to credit industrial. So outrageous. Wow. It's it's really foul. And, you know, it sets up this whole thing that we're more familiar with, uh, that we became familiar with in the 20th and 21st century of the debt of colonized nations to colonize our nations. And I know we, right. hear, we hear this discussion, right, of... Uh, from from some quote unquote progressive quarters or liberal quarters, debt forgiveness. I I, I wondered if if you wanted to comment on that in light of what we've just read. Obviously, the debt is owed by Europe by by colonialism by the U.S. by this this whole you know all the benefactors of the colonial mode of production. The debt is owed. That's what reparations is. It's a repayment of the debt. And which can't even be measured because, like it says, it's not just what was stolen in terms of, of, of recorded monetary theft, but it's also what it does to a people, what it does of just generation after generation of poverty, of inability to go to school. Haiti doesn't even have a school system that's that's public. It doesn't have a public school system. You have to pay to go to school. And so few children in families can afford to do that. This is, you know, everything that we have, everything we have is stolen. And that's the point that we have to look at, that we have to take responsibility for. There's another whole section here on the, what the U.S. did. And maybe, Jamie, you could just read a couple of paragraphs of that, and then we'll, we'll wind up. Invade Haiti, the Wall Street urged, the U.S. obliged. In the drowsy hours of a December afternoon, eight American Marines strolled into the headquarters of Haiti's National Bank and walked out with $500,000 in gold packed in wooden boxes. Wow. They'd they drove the loot by wagon to the shore, past American soldiers in civilian clothes who kept watch along the route. Once at the water, they loaded the boxes and sped to an awaiting gunboat. 
the gold was in the vault of a Wall Street bank within days. The operation took place in 1914, a precursor to the full-scale invasion of Haiti. American forces took over the country the following summer and ruled it with brute force for 19 years, one of the longest military occupations in American history. Even after the soldiers left in 1934, Haiti remained under the control of American financial officers who pulled the country's purse strings for another 13 years. And then I would just add, Jamie, that, of course, they had the Duvaliers then way beyond those 13 years. Right. Yeah. That's, that's like, like we said, that's how it functions, right? You can't have the white man in his own white face doing all of this work. Uh, in, invading Haiti was necessary. The United States said the country was so poor and unstable. The explanation went that if the United States didn't take over some other power would in America's backyard, no less. Secretary of state, Robert Lansing also portrayed the occupation as a civilizing mission to end the, quote, anarchy, savagery, and oppression in Haiti, convinced that, as he once wrote, the African race are devoid of any capacity for political organization. Wow. They'll learn. (laughs) The African People's Socialist Party is the most incredibly brilliant political organization on the planet. Right. And, you know, it's really profound. (laughs) It's profoundly stupid that someone would say that, that a a white person would say that even the history experienced by the world up to this point, uh, given the Haitian revolution, I mean, the the, the colonizer never expects that African people, that colonized people are capable of revolution until it's already underway. That's right. Right. That was the case, uh, during the, the Haitian revolution. I, I was, you know, watching there's this, uh, documentary about the, about the book that we should we should discuss at some point, exterminate all the brutes, mm-hmm. right? By Raoul Peck, and it, it has a quote from a, a Haitian slave owner, a, a white slave owner, just before the Haitian Revolution, who says essentially that uh, revolution on the part of Africans in Haiti is absolutely unthinkable; that it would never happen. Mm-hmm. And only months later, you know, the the plantations <laughs> were ablaze. That's so right. it's it's really interesting that the cap the capacity for denial. So so this goes on after after this white national statement that uh, this uh, person um, Robert Lansing just made. It says, but decades of diplomatic correspondence, financial reports, and archival records reviewed by the New York Times show that behind the public explanations, another hand was hard at work as well, pushing the United States to step in and seize control of Haiti for the wealth it promised Wall Street and especially the bank that later became Citigroup. Under heavy pressure from the National Citibank, Citigroup's predecessor, the Americans uh, elbowed the French aside and became the dominant power in Haiti for decades to come. The United States dissolved Haiti's parliament at gunpoint, killed thousands of people, controlled its finances for more than 30 years, shipped a big portion of its earnings to bankers in New York, and left behind a country so poor that the farmers who helped generate the profits often lived on a diet, quote, close to starvation level, United Nations officials determined in 1949, soon after the Americans let go of the reins. Wow. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues, Major General Smedley Butler, a leader of the American force in Haiti, wrote in 1935, describing himself as a racketeer for capitalism. Wow. I mean, you know, and just we're going to have to stop there, but 
just in the next paragraph says, for more than a century, Haiti has been labeled a disaster, a basket case, a place so destitute, indebted, lacking, and lawless that it needs constant saving. I mean, you know, just to, yeah, that's the narrative of the mm-hmm. U.S. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's really instruct. I mean, it, it's literally just armed robbery colonialism you yes, know they just is. they just strolled into the treasury at gunpoint walked out with the loot carried it directly to the boat and yes and and to you know just to say i mean the the haitian revolution if you can read the book the black jacobins the africans were brilliant just in every way defeated napoleon that was the most incredible level of organization that you could ever see. I mean, it was it was so powerful, and this is the price that that they had to pay, and and it also shows the threat of the African Revolution, whether it was the Black Revolution of the 1960s or the African Revolution anywhere in in Africa or in Congo and. You know, just any place around the world, when Africans have risen up, the U.S. has retaliated with theft and murder. And, you know, it just shows the extent to which the colonial mode of production needs this, the hopes, the parasite must suck the blood. But that day is over because the African People's Socialist Party the African revolution is winning right before under its eyes, like you're saying, yeah. and taking territory. And it's a, a whole new day. And I know we have to wrap up and I, I, you know, I just really want to, to say that this is why the question of reparations is so critical, but not, not just any idea of what that is, but of actually returning it to an organization that is working to liberate Africa and African people everywhere. Uhuru. Uhuru. Well, Chairwoman Penny Hess, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Uh, France and the U- and the U.S. fattened off of the suffering of Africans in Haiti for over 200 years. And I think this is a topic we'll continue to return to, but this concludes part two. Thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to white lies shattered. We'll see you next time. You're listening to reparations in action. This has been an episode of Reparations in Action, the White Lies Shattered series, a biased podcast of white solidarity with black power. My name is Jamie Simpson. This episode was engineered by Marcel Marius, who also composed our theme music. The show is researched and produced by Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and Lisa Watson from the Black Power 96.3 FM studio in St. Petersburg, Florida. A shout out to Akile Anayi and DJ Eddie Maltzby, as well as the entire Reparations in Action team, Sandra Forrest, Johan Bedingfield, Amanda Carlozzi, Kyle Weiss, Marissa Ricchetti, Ali Aiello, Alana Woods, Declan Keller, Hallie Murray, and Sarah Ritterspock. If you liked what you heard today, you can go to Apple Podcasts and rate this podcast. 
If you have questions, comments, suggestions, please email them to us at ria at blackpower96.org. Special thanks to the African People's Socialist Party's Chairman Omali Yeshitela, without whose leadership and theory of African internationalism, none of the understandings presented on reparations in action would be possible. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. 